If you're a visitor with us this morning, we're delighted to have you worship the Lord with us. We are studying verse by verse the Gospel of Mark, and we find ourselves today at the end of chapter 4. And you might see in your Bible, especially if you're using the Pew Bible this morning, a little phrase that says, Jesus calms the storm. And though it might be tempting to make the seemingly easy statement in some edition of this passage this morning, Jesus calmed the storm and he can calm the storm in your life as well. That statement is true. And yet if we're to leave there, if we're to pack our bags and put our Bibles away and stand up and walk out the back of the door, we've only come away with a small slice of the pie from the glorious truth that is presented to us this morning in this word of Scripture here in Mark chapter 4. We've come through the majority of the parables written in Mark, and uh, we must remember that Mark writes thematically, and that by the direction of the Holy Spirit in writing this gospel account, we would be wise this morning to look at this passage here in Mark 4, 35 through 41, and ask ourselves the question, how does this passage connect to all that's come before it in Mark 4, 1 through 34? It might be helpful to think of something like this. We can probably all remember a time, especially maybe with a a young, energetic child, teaching them something. Now, little one, here's what I would like you to do. And I want you to take the tool and you're going to turn it like this. This is going to open and then I want you to do this. And that young child, eager to learn, energetic, grabs the tool from your hand and dives right in. Only to very quickly learn that what he thought he knew here was much more difficult to actually imply, uh, to apply in practice. You might think of uh, all that has come before this passage as the lecture. And then here's the lab, 35 through 41. Here's the opportunity to, to put your hands to the plow, as it were, to make application. Here's the test, if you will, of all that's been taught beforehand. The story of Christ calming the the storm this morning is is simply that. It's the the test for all the lessons that have become before it. I divided the passage this morning into three sections, and humorously, as I was preparing my notes this morning and recalling the previous sermons in preparation for this, I thought, you know, I don't think I've spoken once with anything but three points. So there might be a day coming, come each Sunday to find out, if I speak in four or five points. But today, again, only three. We'll look at the command in verses 35 through 37. We'll look at the control, verses 38 through 40. And we'll look at the confrontation, verses 40 through 41. Look with me at the passage there. If your eyes are on the text... 35 through 37, on that day when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the boat, they took with him, took him with them in the boat just as he was, and other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. 
They were in the boat. Uh, Mark writes thematically, so we're not sure if this is the, still the same boat that was mentioned all the way over in chapter 3, verse 9, or maybe the boat that Christ got into as sort of this amphitheater on the sea to speak about the parables. We're not sure, but he's in a boat. It's notice at the end of the day, and they're to take this trip all the way across to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. The Sea of Galilee is not a large sea, but it has some very interesting uh, uh, topographical um, aspects to it. It's 696 feet below sea level. So a very warm water. But then the mountains that surround the Sea of Galilee are actually quite high, as much as 9,000 feet higher, with deep valleys and canyons and gulches that go between them. So this cool air will come off the top of the Sea of Galilee, oh, excuse me, off the top of the mountains, come through these canyons, and then that warm air rising off, off the sea, it meets, and there's this incredible storm. Think of yourself flying in a plane the last time you may have flown. You're flying along at 30,000 or so feet, and all of a sudden, the plane shifts. You didn't see a storm. You didn't see any thunder. You didn't see lightning. They call it clear air turbulence. All of a sudden, out of nowhere, there's this turbulence that shakes the plane. And this is what would often happen on the Sea of Galilee. That warm air rising, meeting with that cold air coming down, and coming with just this incredible gale force winds. Notice the details that Mark includes. He includes other boats. He includes this pillow that we'll see here in verse 38. You notice that he says the, the waves were breaking into the boat that it was a great storm and that there was a great calm. All of these details pointing to the inerrancy of Scripture, that the fact that the Bible is a complete story from cover to cover without error or mistake. Now this boat has a couple of uh, types to it. We might call the boat a type. It's a picture of some things. Before we get to the remainder of this story, let's think of the boat as the life of a Christian. You get into the boat, as it were, with Christ. Christ calling you, all the way back in Mark 1, calling you into the boat. Come with me. Let's go to the other side. Follow me. Be a fisher of men. Come and obey me. But we also can think of the, the boat as the church. As the church. As, as all of us together following Christ. And for those reading Mark's gospel in the early church in Ephesus, this passage would have been of great encouragement and comfort under persecution. In fact, the early church picked up on this theme of Christ calming the storm. So if you look at a lot of early Christian church art, what you'll notice is many pictures of a calm sea, glassy smooth, with a boat in the middle of the, of the picture, in Christ with his hands outstretched, calming the sea, calming the storm. We notice the wind and the sea buffeting the boat, and for the church, attacks come in, twofold man, in a twofold manner, from within and from without, heresy from within and persecution from without. And in many ways, we at FCF are Though a church of 13 years old, we're sort of striking out on a new endeavor. You've got a new young pastor. It's sort of a new day here. And we've got to be, we've got to be understanding in our realization that in the boat to follow Christ, there are going to be difficulties that arise. 
This isn't going to be smooth sailing to the other side, as it were. And everything's just going to go hunky-dory with this church. I wish that were the case, but that's not the way it's described here in Scripture at all. In fact, it's described that there's going to be difficulties that arise. Wind and waves are going to come over and pound the boat. And our faith as a church, our unity on the gospel of Jesus Christ is going to be tested. Let's not be naive about that in any way, shape, or form. Notice the fact that Jesus gives the word of command. Let us go across to the other side. I think sometimes we think of the storms of life. They come because of our sin. Oh, we must have done something wrong and now God's going to come down and really wipe us clean. Help us really get our attention. The storm wasn't because of sin like maybe the storm in the book of Jonah The storm wasn't because these disciples had done something wrong or they were experiencing the consequences of some bad choice. But we so quickly jump to that conclusion, don't we? Oh, must have done something wrong here. No way the storms of life would have come up for any other reason. The Christian life is supposed to be a glassy sea, smooth sailing. Must have done something wrong. And that's not the truth at all. Their obedience to Christ is what got them into the storm. Our obedience to Christ is what will get us into the storm. Because this is the God that we serve. He's a loving God. His discipline is loving. His discipline is careful. And there are plenty of consequences. There are plenty of storms that come from sin. But notice here, and for our lives as well, the storm arose out of obedience to Christ. And if uh, we were the weatherman, as it were, of the Christian life, we better have storms on the forecast. Why? Because if you're following the master, where the master goes, storms arise. That's simply the, the truth here in this passage. You're going to have storms. Relational storms circumstances, health storms, these storms are going to come up. God, for his good purposes, leads us into storms. And the writer of this book being Mark, but we have already talked about the fact that probably from the testimony of Peter, and Peter would go on to write in 1 Peter 1, 5 through 7, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Christ's command is what will lead us into the storm. Verses 38 through 40. The control. Look with me at the passage there. But he was in the stern, back of the boat, asleep on the cushion. This cushion would have probably been there for those who weren't part of the rowing or the sailing team. If it would have been a fishing boat, if you weren't involved in the fishing at the moment, you would go maybe take that cushion out from underneath its seat and rest a while. And he falls asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, 
Do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. The fatigue of Christ demonstrated here in his sleeping. And just by quick way of application, may I encourage you, to imitate Christ and pressing yourself in the work of gospel and the work of the gospel to the point of fatigue. We're so surrounded by a world that says, you know what? If you go to bed tired, you must have done something wrong. Your health should be to the point that you always have great energy. And yet here, imitating Christ, may we press ourselves in the work of gospel, work of the gospel to the point that we are fatigued. Deeply investing ourselves in the work of kingdom, in the work of the kingdom, to the point that sleep comes quickly and deeply when the opportunity arises. Jonah, remember, he was asleep on a stormy sea, but he was asleep while fleeing from God. And here, Christ is asleep on the boat while restoring people to God. Notice the faith of Christ. He's so dependent upon his Father. To the point that it allowed him to rest in perfect peace, knowing that the Heavenly Father never slumbers nor sleeps, never takes a nap, never relinquishes his self-control. It is without a doubt in my mind that the sleep of Christ was a natural one. Some might say in their, that, well, he was sort of faking it to test his disciples. I don't think so at all. I think it was a very natural sleep. And it was an exhausted man who was able to sleep quite soundly. The storm, no doubt in my mind, being brought about under the sovereign hand of God, creating it as a means of testing the faith of the disciples. Or, if you will, identifying the hidden weakness in their life. And here it's in contrast to the complete faith of Christ in his Father. And we are to have that same type of faith. That when the storms, the circumstances of life kick up into an overwhelming nature... We must remember that God is sovereign, in control, and is using this storm to test our faith or, and or help us to identify a hidden weakness in our faith. Really, these storms are quite gracious. Notice the disciples went to Christ only when the danger got out of their control. Only when they were beyond their know-how and what to do did they go to Christ. Now, these were, these were men that were fishermen. They were well acquainted with the boat. They were well acquainted even with the storms of the Sea of Galilee. And so they held off to going to Christ until the, sort of this last moment of peril. Alistair Begg tells the story of it probably wouldn't have been something like this. All the disciples gathering at the front end of the boat, drowning as it were, whispering together, okay, listen. Listen, I think we've got to go wake him up. How about you? No, 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 I don't want to do it. He's sort of asleep. I don't want to wake him up. He's sleeping so soundly. He's been working so hard. No, no, how about you go wake him up? Okay, fine, I'll go wake him up. Man goes over to Christ, nudges him gently on the shoulder. Hey, you know, those guys over there, they're a little worried. You, you might want to do something about this. I'm not worried at all. I trust you completely, but these guys are pretty concerned. I don't think that was the case at all, was it? These guys have waited all the way to the very end, and for fear that I might hurt someone's eardrums, I won't yell, but 
they would have probably screamed, Jesus, help us. Don't you see that we're perishing? Don't you care? Let's not wait to go to Christ till we've re- exhausted all our know-how. Let's go to Christ right away in prayer when we start to see the waves stir up around us, even before we see the waves stir up around us. Not every fear is a sin. These men had a great fear. In fact, many fears are, are natural for protection and drive us to further trust in prayer with the Father. So what made this fear sinful is it went, it went beyond faith, when it became excessive. John Calvin says, we ought to be aware that it is not every kind of fear which indicates a want of faith, but only that dread which disturbs the peace of the conscience in such a manner that it does not rest on the promise of God. And notice their question. Do you not care that we are perishing? What a horrible question. And if we could go back, we could say, listen, guys, you're going to have a situation on this boat. Ask any question you like, but don't ask the question. Don't you care? Calling out to Christ is a wonderful and proper display of faith. And yet, their question shows that they had a lack of faith. Calling out to him was the correct response, but they called out to him questioning the wrong thing. Don't you care? And yet here, knowing Christ, the Son of God, asleep in the back of this boat, who had come as a baby to a lowly and humble beginning, the Christ who had called them to come and follow him, the Christ who had healed some of their own relatives even, the Christ who had told them he had come for the sick and not those for the well, they could have asked him any other question, but they asked him the wrong one. And we ask the same question all the time, don't we? Don't you care? Don't you care that things aren't going well within my marriage? Don't, don't you care, Jesus, that my job isn't making the ends meet? Don't you care that my health is failing and not where I want it to be? Don't you care that I'm, that I'm not married yet? Do you not care that we're perishing? Don't you care of the direction that the country of America is going? Don't you care? It's the wrong question, isn't it? He cares. He cares more than we could ever know. See, the circumstances, this storm brought about by the sovereign hand of God was simply to reveal the actual amount of faith that they had, which was very little. Think about it. We, we sit here each Sunday morning studying God's word, delighting in and affirming the promises of Scripture. Nothing I've said this morning, any of us more than likely would say, nope, I don't believe that. No, we would all hold to these truths. And, and, and the glory of Christ, we would all hold to the glory of Christ. And yet, if we don't have an actual training ground for the classroom that is this Sunday morning, what good is what we are, what good is what we are learning if we don't put it into practice? We don't have a chance to apply what we're actually learning. And that's what the circumstances are in God's sovereign hand. It's the training ground for our faith. 
meant to strengthen our faith and sharpen our belief in the truth. So crying out to God is certainly an acknowledgement is the right thing to do, an acknowledgement of who he is. But their question revealed a lack of faith. Their question revealed their lack of faith and their peace with God in looking for the peace of God. We so oftentimes want the peace of God on circumstances and we ask the wrong questions, not realizing that we have the peace with God because of the atoning work of Jesus Christ for us. The disciples' fear of perishing is greater than their faith in the presence of the creator of the sea. The wind was rebuked, notice, but the waves would have, stepped, would have still continued to crash for some time. So he didn't just rebuke the wind and, and then 15 minutes later they all would have looked around and said, you know, you know he, he, he stopped the wind, but for a few minutes there I still thought we were gone. We were, we were done in. Oh no. He rebuked the wind and yet in the same sentence he shows his power. He commands the waves to be calm and immediately it would have gone from large swells to a glassy smooth sea. I don't know about you but if you put yourself in that boat maybe alongside the disciples Maybe your face is still flushed with energy of trying to take all the water out of the boat. Dripping with this water still off your face from perspiration in the sea. Shaking even from the fear of the situation. And then all of a sudden finding yourself looking down, soaking wet, perspiration, shaking, and yet glassy smooth sea and and just an eerie calm falling across the face of the water and realizing that what was just said was from the Christ who is the promised Lord and Savior of the Old Testament that this wasn't just simply a man that they were following. That this was the pinnacle of the glory of the majesty of God in the story of redemptive history. A story that we are a part of and will continue to see rise in majesty and splendor to the heights of eternity with God the Father in heaven. This was the Lord God Almighty. This was the promised sovereign Lord of the Old Testament. Maybe they would have even recalled the preaching of John the Baptist from Isaiah 40, 3 through 5. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. And they would have thought, every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low, the uneven ground, the swells of the sea shall become level, and the rough places a plain, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. They would have realized that the supernatural power of God to create life from death in the parable of the sower and the seed and of the kingdom is being manifested, is being displayed in the lesson before them. 
That Psalm 29, 3 through 4, they would have maybe recalled that the voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. And they would have went, and this is that Lord. Or Psalm 65, 5 through 8. By awesome deeds you answer us with righteousness, O God of our salvation. The hope of all the ends of the earth and of the farthest seas. The one who by his strength established the mountains, being girded with might. Who still the roaring of the seas, the roaring of their waves, the tumult of the peoples. So that the ends of the earth are in awe at your signs. You make the going out of the morning and the evening to shout for joy. Or Psalm 107, 28 through 30. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet, and he brought them through to their desired haven. They would have realized that the God who split the Red Sea is the Christ there among them who calmed the storm. And what is true of the God of Israel in the Old Testament is true of Christ for us in the New Testament. It is one God, three persons. And so when Christ stands up and says to the sea, be calm, the sea immediately becomes calm. Calvin, not that the lake had any perception but to show that the power of his voice had reached the elements which were devoid of feeling, the lake became calm. The lake couldn't couldn't hear anything. Water can't hear. But the word of Christ always does a creative act. The voice of God is powerful upon the waters. And when Christ commanded, the elements obeyed. And for us as Christians today, when God in His sovereignty and kindness and goodness and love has called out to us in our deafness, in our darkness, in our deadness to Christ and said, come forth and be life. We came forth. We came into the light of the knowledge of Jesus Christ. And if you are here this morning and have not seen the majesty and wonder of Christ, do a redemptive, creative work upon your life to take you from dead to life, to give you the power to understand the faith, to realize that he is King of kings and Lord of lords, then I simply plead with you that you would respond in repentance, that you would respond by putting your faith in Jesus Christ alone that you would respond by understanding that this God is not to be trifled with. He can calm seas and he can split seas and he has all authority and power to judge righteously and he will one day come to him. Brothers and sisters, if you hear nothing else this morning, I would want you to listen to this. I don't know the storm that's currently in your life. I've I've been very thankful for the bit of grace many of you have given me to help me understand a little bit of the storms that you're occurring that are occurring in your life. But all of us this morning would would be naive to think that the really big ones are the ones we oftentimes have even trouble putting into words, describing, telling another person. So I don't know what your storms would be. But I want you to hear clearly this truth. 
when Christ, what Christ wants you to know from this passage this morning is that no matter the storm, he is the king. He is the Lord of that storm. You know, I, I wish I could say that with just the right tone and inflection, with just the right way to, to just drive that so deep into your heart. And there's just no way. I can't say that. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. And so I, I plead as I have been pleading all week, beseeching the throne of grace that the Holy Spirit might just take that truth that he is Lord of the storm and sink the anchor of that so deep that there's, just, there's nothing that can shake you free from that. Nothing at all. Knowing that for the disciples here, the king was in the boat with them. And for us now as, as believers in Jesus Christ post-cross, that the king rules in your heart. He is there. He is Lord of the storm. Amen? Amen. Let's go to the confrontation. We see the confrontation here in verse 40 through 41. Let me read the passage to us. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even wind and sea obey him? Alistair Begg saying, Jesus caused a spiritual storm when he quieted a natural storm. A spiritual storm arose within their heart. Notice that they went from having uh, a great fear, terrified of the elements that were around them, to them being a great calm across the sea, to there being a great fear within their own hearts. Christ delighting to work through faith to such an extent that his work leaves a mark upon our heart and mind that it produces a reverence for Christ, driving us, empowering us to continue believing on him. God's concern uh, is with all things. So I have no doubt in the sovereignty of God over all things, whether it's from the football game to the election to our health to trivial matters, to important matters. But let's remember that God's primary concern is with faith and unbelief. His primary purpose for control is to the end of faith and unbelief. That's the primary purpose for why he controls everything, is for the purpose of faith or unbelief. That the antidote to fear of the circumstances in this story is faith in the presence of Jesus Christ, their Lord and Master. It is God's will for storms in order to test that faith. That's his primary purpose. That's why he brings storms into your life, is to test that faith. He wants it stronger for your own good and for his glory as well. Notice the disciples, they finish with the right question. They may have started off on the wrong foot, but now they ask the right question. And this question is setting up the, the pinnacle, the high point of the entire book of Mark found in Mark chapter 8. When Christ says, who do you say that I am? And the disciples here in verse 41, who then is this that even the wind and sea obey him? It's
It's a rhetorical question, isn't it? The answer is simply, he is Christ, the Son of God. He is the Christ, as we sang about this morning, your Savior and friend. What a friend we have in Jesus. All our griefs and sorrows bear. He is the Christ. He he, he is the Lord of the universe. And if, if you are in Christ and Christ is in you, you need not fear your circumstances to the point of unbelief. There is no need. You need not fear, as the scriptures say, though the mountains be moved into the midst of the sea because Christ is seated on the throne. Christ, your Christ, is is not in the boat on the sea anymore. He's in heaven. He's ruling and reigning. And your God lives within you and will never leave you nor forsake you. And so just one question remains for us this morning. First, do you believe that? And then, more importantly, will you act upon that belief? What is the storm for you this morning? Will you act upon the belief that he's the Lord of that? I cannot promise you an end to your storm this morning. I wish I could. I wish I could tell you, yeah, that health difficulty is going to end in two weeks. That your finances are going to be fixed in two hours. That your marriage will be fixed in two minutes. I don't know what the storm is. But I can promise you that what the enemy wants you to believe about your situation is a lie and you have all the grace and faith available through Christ to resist that and trust his promises afresh. John 20, verse 31. Why do we have this written for us this morning? Very simply. These things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Let me close with a a story, a story many of you know well. A story of a man that lived from 1828 to 1888. A story of a man who had one of the strongest faiths in God that we know. And yet a story of a man who went through indescribable pain and difficulty. This man, Horatio Spafford, a wealthy Chicago lawyer with a thriving legal practice, a beautiful home, a wife, four daughters, a son, a devout Christian. In fact, he he ran with men like Dwight L. Moody or Ira Sankey, other well-known Christians of that day. And at the very height, at the very pinnacle of his financial and professional and even familial success, Horatio and his wife suffer the tragic loss of their young son on October 8th, 1871. They not only lose their son, but on that day, through the great Chicago fire, they lost almost every real estate investment that they had. But it gets worse. In 1873, two years later, their son now being taken their financial success now being taken, Spafford schedules a boat trip to Europe in order to give his wife and daughters a much-needed vacation and time to recover from the tragedy. And he goes to join Moody and Sankey 
on an evangelistic campaign in England. And so he sends his wife and daughters ahead of them. And several days later, gets the word that all four daughters have drowned. And only his wife survives. And with a heavy heart, he boards a boat that takes him to his wife in England. And it was on this trip that he penned the now famous words. When sorrow like sea billows roll, it is well. It is well with my soul. Father, we thank you that you are Lord of the storm. Father, I don't know I don't know every storm that these sweet people are going through. But I know enough to know that you're Lord of that from this word this morning. And I know enough to know that for myself personally and for these as well, we need to be reminded of that. That the truth of your sovereignty over all things, particularly our hearts, but even to the point of the elements or inanimate objects, as it says in Isaiah 6, that the foundations of the temple were moved. They had the good sense to be moved by the voice and majesty and holiness of God. That your power knows no limit. And then upon the billows of life, Father, upon the sea as it rolls, whatever the circumstances are for these people today, I ask that we would be able to say with great joy and with great faith, it is well with my soul. Not that the sea has been calmed, not that the circumstances have gone away, but that we realize That Christ that was in that boat now rules and reigns within our hearts. And we are in no better place than where you have placed us. And may our faith be strengthened. May our faith be found true under the tests, whatever they may be. Father, thank you for your word. May it do a creative act upon us this morning. May it go deep even within the dark recesses that where the faith may not be as strong as we want it to be. And may it bring us strongly through. Father, whatever you hold this week, whatever it would be, may we be strengthened by the truth of this word this morning to face whatever it is. If it's death, what a joy to be able to die for the glory of the gospel. If it's difficulty, what a joy to be able to suffer for the cause of Christ. We just, we just, we thank you that we are yours and you are ours by your love and kindness for us and to us. In Jesus' precious name we pray, amen.